Um, one of my uh, favorite theologians, uh, fathers of the faith, of my faith, um, if you will, uh, is a gentleman by the name of R.C. Sproul. And if you've been coming to Hope at all, uh, Hope Lower Town, you, you know that I, I love R.C. Sproul. Um, his, um, not just his, his theology, um, but just how, how he delivers and how he, how he teaches. And, and, and there's a story, um, I wasn't there for this, but there's a story that, that I've heard that um, R.C. was uh, once speaking at a conference and someone had asked him a question about the Bible and he didn't have his Bible. And so he, he asked, like, could I, could I borrow someone's Bible? And so someone in the front, front row there um, actually taught, tossed up a book to, to R.C., and, uh, and he recounts the story that he looked down at it and saw that it was just the New Testament. And he just threw it right back to him. And he said, no, I asked for a Bible, right? Uh, the reason why he said that and did that was to prove a point of, I think, a pretty common sentiment within our culture that the only thing that we really need right now uh, to learn about who God is and who Jesus is, is the New Testament. And that's simply not true. Um, and so I want to, I want to, I want to go back. I'm going to go back to the beginning here. Um, and, and why, what, what are we, what are we doing? Um, uh, right. Because as, as we go back to the beginning, the, the Bible, the old Testament specifically is not just the history book. What the, what the old Testament does is it reveals to us the character of God. Some theologians call it his autobiography. I mean, every, every story, every law, Everything about it, it's not archaic. It, it reveals something about who our God is. And so that's why I want to go, go back to the beginning. And specifically, why, why are we doing that? Well, we've been going through Job, uh, the journey of Job. And this technically is week eight. We took uh, last week off and took a break from that when we were looking at, at Easter. And so this is, this is week eight. And specifically, uh, the sermon that we're going to be looking at today is who is Satan? All right, and I, and I in this at the early parts of the week, I started to try to kind of answer the question, "Why is Satan right, or, or, or how is Satan? How did he become to exist? Where where did evil come from?" But we're going to be talking about that next week, and so I, I really just landed on who is Satan, who who is he in the scriptures, but also I think more importantly for us, who is he now to me, um, and and what does that mean for all of us who. Um, are, are Christians. And so again, this is, this is week eight. I don't even know how many weeks I've been doing this from home. So maybe it's like the, the 21st or the 11th sermon that I've done from home. Uh, I don't remember. It's all just kind of a blur. Um, but uh, we're going to kind of keep, keep going on this. So who is Satan? When I teach this class, we, when we look at, um, it, it sounds, it's not fancy, actually, angelology, just study of angels and demonology, the study of demons in our systematic theology class. Uh, I always start off with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it's from his book, um, The Screwtape Letters. And, and as the Screwtape Letters, are, it's, a, it's a, this novel uh, of these letters that are going back and forth from, from Wormwood uh, screw tape to his, his nephew, Wormwood. Well, I might've reversed that it's Wormwood. I think Wormwood is the uncle writing to his nephew, screw tape, who are demons, um, who, how we would say we have guardian angels. They, we also have guardian demons, right? Yeah. That'll keep you up at night. And so he kind of wrote this whole thing about it. 
And but he starts off the book by by saying saying this: there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or a magician with the same delight. Right? He, he just kind of gives this warning that we could sit here and we can talk about Satan, we can talk about demons, we can talk about angels in a healthy way, in a, in a way about knowledge, but without completely dismissing it, and yet without completely embracing this and, and being curious about how all these things work. And we need to be careful with that. So I want to go back to the beginning. And without necessarily reading scripture, I'm not going to read the first two chapters all the way through. But what we're going to see is God making these benedictions, right? These, these proclamations of blessing. And he's going to say it was good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. But, but even though the tree of knowledge of good and evil is going to be made, he doesn't call that necessarily evil in the sense of what the next word, right? That those are benedictions. And then you, you can make a, a malediction, right? You can make a curse at something saying this is evil. And the first time that he does that, is he pronounces a malediction against loneliness to say, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he sees Adam by himself and he says, it is not good for you to be alone. And so, so God, what does he do? He creates woman, he creates Eve, and they become co-heirs. They become co-regents over God's creation. But then we have then Genesis chapter three, a, um, theologian, E.J. Young, he wrote an entire book on chapter 3 of Genesis called The Sound of Scripture. He says this, the opening words of Genesis 3 sound a note that is ominous. It is foreboding. There is a foreshadowing that's preparing the readers for an intrusion in this majestic story. And if you remember back when we were in Job, um, specifically, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Job anymore. I, I really want to just answer those questions that are begging to be answered when we went through Job. But, but this is the first time we see an intrusion. We saw this in, in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, um, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also. In every commentary I read, that, that word of also just says he wasn't supposed to be there. He intruded in this heavenly courtroom, this heavenly scene, Satan shows up. And it's this intrusion, right? So, so what is this ominous note? What is this intrusion that happens? And in Genesis chapter 3, it changes. The, the tenor, the tone changes of this. Instead of it is good, it is good, it is good. Now chapter 3, it starts off with now. Right. Um, and I think of ominous notes. I know I talk about Jurassic Park way too much, uh, but but I'm actually not talking to talk about, talk about the movie. I'm going to talk about uh, the soundtrack and and in it, there's that, that famous, um, famous song. I was actually practicing this this morning, so don't be impressed. But. Um, Right. And there's and just beautiful, majestic song. But there's this one one song on the soundtrack 
that it does that. It's just beautiful, and it kind of it sounds like it's going to end, and it's going to fade out, and there's this one ominous note, and it just... And then all of a sudden, the brass instruments come in. Dun, 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 That's how the song ends. Right? Just like, whoa. Like, I don't, I don't know. I know nothing about the movie, but that something's about to happen. That That's what's happening here. This ominous note, something changes. And what is it? What is it about the serpent? It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Crafty, cunning, sly, slippery, beguiling, right? Just full of evil. You're just something about that note. What, what is it that it's about to be said that's not right? I love John chapter 147 when Jesus is calling his disciples and they, he just is calling them and they're, they're jumping out of their boats and they're following him. There's this guy, Nathaniel, and he's sitting under a fig tree and Jesus calls him, calls him over. And as he approaches in John chapter 1, verse 47, he says this, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no guile, in whom there is no deceit. But here in Genesis chapter 3, this serpent is nothing but guile, right? And again, this would be a great opportunity and to talk about, well, where did he come from, right? He's just on the scene. And I can tell you right now, I've studied this. I, I, I've, I've taught on this. I teach on this multiple times a year. That, that everything that we can talk about, well, when did Satan fall from, from grace? When did, he, when did he rebel against God? What was the option that he was giving to, to, to worship God or not? Were all the angels given that? Was it just everything speculation, period, right? And there's a, there's a Luther quote that I, I, I read a couple weeks ago that says um, this, right? Because Luther, he was talking about, I study the words and I get so caught up in the details of these words that I lose the big picture, right? And that's why we're studying the Old Testament. That's why we want to open this up to say it's not just the New Testament. There's, there's a lot going on here. So, so I can get bogged down in the details of saying, well, was the serpent actually the serpent? I've, I've read before that in Job that Satan could be the Satan, the accuser. Maybe it's not actually like Satan. Well, and, and then sometimes it's referred to as the dragon. Well, Jesus says specifically, um, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, right? So Jesus was there. So I don't know when it happened. I don't, I don't know what the timeline is. It's all speculatory. But what I do know is all these names about the devil are clearly spelled out by the Apostle John in Revelation, well, several places in Revelation, but Revelation 12, 9 specifically says that great dragon was thrown down. Well, he calls him a dragon. Then he specifically says that ancient serpent, Oh, okay. All right. So it's the same one that was in the garden is now this is this dragon. It's the same one, right? Who is called the devil and Satan. And in case I didn't name enough names, he's the deceiver of the world. Okay. Let's just, let's just cover all the bases here. He's thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. All right. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, next week, we're going to look at where did evil come from? Right, so what is it about this serpent that makes him crafty, that makes him beguiling, that makes him so shifty, <laughs> right? Genesis chapter 3, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? All right, now this is interesting. He says here, has God said? All right, if you can remember three words from this sermon, I hope it's this. Has God said? These are, well, I'm going to talk a whole lot more about that. But these are the three words, right? In, in, in 20 years from now. Hey, remember that one sermon that Pastor Brian was preaching on April 8th, May, on the 11th of 220,000? What were those words? Oh, yeah, those three words. Has God said. And what's interesting is what he actually brings up. What does he say? This is what he says. Has God said, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And now imagine being Eve here, right? She's, she's listening to, to Satan say this. That doesn't sound very crafty. That doesn't sound deceitful or beguiling. He says that God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Right? I would imagine her response, and maybe I'm using a little bit of uh, artistic liberties here, but I would imagine that she was just like, you silly snake. No, I mean, no, of course he didn't say that, right? God didn't say that, right? Eve, Eve then defends what God does say, and what is it that God actually says from this slanderer? She says, no, 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 God didn't say we can't eat of any tree. God said we can eat of any tree we want. You got it all wrong, little, little snake. He only said we can't eat from that tree, right? The direct quote is the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, right? It's kind of like this almost afterthought. Well, I guess, yeah, he did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. All right, that's what God said. And Eve, I mean, if we're following the narrative uh, a little bit chronologically, Eve wasn't there when the tree was created. It was just Adam. And so Adam is relaying the truth of what God had taught about this tree uh, to them. Sorry, my leg's going numb. I'm sitting weird. I don't didn't realize I'll... <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> All right, she says, no, if we eat of that tree, if we eat of that fruit, we will surely die. All right, she defends what what God says. Now, here's the guile. Here's the deceitfulness. Here's what Satan, here's what the serpent is doing. The serpent suggests that if you, if you look at that one tree, but right? if God, if God says there's one thing you can't do, well, then he might as well just suggest you can't do anything. I mean, if he's put one rule, one thing that limits your freedom, that limits your liberty, I mean, hey, you are a free moral agent, are you not? Then how come you can't do that? He's suggesting right here, by this rule that God has put into place, it limits your freedoms. Are you saying you might as well, might as well just limit everything? You might as well just be a slave to him because right now in this situation, you're just a puppet. You're just... You're just doing what he asked you to do. That's not freedom. That's not liberty, Eve. Right, you might think and act and talk and walk like a real boy, but guess what, Pinocchio? The master is just his puppeteer moving you around wherever you want to go. I doubt the serpent 
called Eve Pinocchio. That would have been quite confusing. But what does he say? Has God said? He specifically attacks the word of God. Now, I've, I've done this before in the past where I, I talk about this temptation of Eve and how it connects with uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And so I want to go there. But even in my study this week, this has, right? Let me, let, me, let me just read this. This is Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, he's hungry. It's right here in the text. But I don't think that's the main temptation. It's definitely a temptation and a big part of a temptation. But I don't think it's the temptation. Because this serpent, Satan, he's crafty. And what is he doing? He does the same thing. He attacks the word of God. Or else he would have just said, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. That's not it. What does he say? There's an if-then clause. If you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. How is he attacking God's word? Well, little pet peeve of mine, little maybe information. I don't know if you knew this or not. Chapters in the Bible and verses are not inspired, right? The original writers of the Bible did not put little numbers in there to designate when things stopped and, and a new thought, and that didn't happen. And so right before this chapter 4, 1 through 4, which I just read, we have, guess what, chapter 3. And it's all just one story. All right, so I want to go back and I want to read this a little bit. This is Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, and then it's 4, 1. And we're going to hear now, in this point, the audible voice of God during Jesus' baptism. It's one of three times where you have the audible voice of God present in the New Testament. It says this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, right? Buried with him the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. And with him, I am well pleased. And then immediately Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, Satan doesn't say, because you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? If, hey, Jesus, I know, I know that voice from heaven, that ominous voice said you were the son of God, but Let's find out. Let's see if you can prove it. If you're the son of God, prove it. Has God said, right? Can I trust the word of God? And I love Jesus's response. And again, I always thought it was just some cool, quoting some scripture, throwing it back at Satan. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. I'm hungry, Satan. But I do know this, man shall not live by bread alone. That was even just a quick story about Henry. Just the other day, he had a bagel for breakfast. And uh, Angela was like, hey, I'm making some cinnamon rolls. Do you want one? And he goes, 
is it bread? And she goes, yes. And he's like, okay, right. He, he loves bread. I have to quote this to him all the time. You can't live by bread alone. You got to eat, you got to eat something else. But he, but then he says this, but right. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not if here say, it's not if I am the son of God, but God said I was period. I can trust what he says. I can trust his word. I can trust that when God said, this is my son, that I'm his son, and I don't need to prove it to you or anybody else. So going back to Genesis 3, has God said, has God said that you can't eat? She's, Eve says, no, 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 we, we can do that. We just can't eat of that tree. But then he says this, and he directly contradicts God now, where he says, you will not die. You will not surely die, right? I mean, come on, Eve. Let's think about this. This is not just an A and then B that happens. It's an A and it doesn't have to be B. You can eat the fruit and you won't certainly die. Right? But these two things, these two temptations from Satan don't just happen in the garden with Eve and in the, and in the, in the wilderness with Jesus. This happens all the time, as God said. Can I trust him? Can I, can I believe the words of God? And yet, we believe this in our hearts all the time. Oh, I can sin without consequences. I can reject the truth of the Bible without there being any ramifications in my life with that. I, I can commit high treason against my traitor without there being a death penalty. God is love. God is love. Why would there be consequences? Because God said there would be. He says, you will not certainly die, the servant said to the woman. But then he goes on with this. For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, again, a little bit of liberty in here. Maybe there was a little bit of dialogue, maybe not. But either way, I'm sure Eve was thinking, what's he talking about? I'm already like God. I'm already like God. He made me in his image. I can think, I can reason, I can be self-aware, I can create. I can do all these things that God has made me to be able to do because I am created in his likeness. I am like God. And then the serpent says, oh, no, 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 no. You're missing the point here. You, you'll be like God in ways you didn't even realize. You will be able to think like God, knowing good and evil. You can have the kind of knowledge that God has. You'll be divine. You'll no longer have him telling you what you can and can't do. You can choose for yourself what you want to do. You want to eat that fruit? Eat the fruit. It's a, it's a phrase that theologians call autonomy, right? Free from the law, or I become the law unto myself. Self-rule. I do what I want. And this is exactly what Satan is saying. Humanity, you listening, everyone on here, myself included. I can choose. I can choose. This is going to be my world, and I will make of my world, what I want it to be. You can't tell me what to do. This is, this is me, man. 
I'm a free-willed, independent creature, and I will do what I want. I will make this world as I see fit. And the serpent says, just taste this fruit. God didn't say those things. You're not going to die. This is the fruit of autonomy. This is the fruit of self-rule and sovereignty. This is freedom. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Independence, here we come. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Their eyes were opened, but not to the wisdom that they thought they were going to get. It was open to their nakedness. It was open to their shame, open to their nothingness. That without their creator, they have nothing. Because humanity was created to run toward their creator. We are created to meet him in the cool of the day as he's walking through the garden to be able to say, yes, that's my God. He is so good and loving. But instead, we chose autonomy and independence, our own sovereignty, our own will to be superior to that of our creator's. And instead of running to him, we ran away from him. We hid. We hid. We hid ourselves. We hid our nakedness. What uh, R.C. Sproul, I love this, we became fugitives from the gaze of God. And what we see from the rest of the Bible, from that moment on, what we don't see is Adam and Eve pursuing their creator. We don't see Adam and Eve with their newfound wisdom and knowledge of good and evil saying, hey, I think maybe we should go to our father. We should go to our creator and ask for help, ask what we should do in the situation. It's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is, is that creator now chasing after his creatures. The whole Bible. Genesis chapter 3, 21, right after this fall, says, The Lord God made garments for skin for Adam and his wife. He killed an innocent animal to close his creatures that committed treason, that said, We know better than you, God. I ate that fruit of autonomy. And what does he do? He, he stoops down low to them on their level, and he clothes them with innocent blood, and he clothes, clothes them and hides them from their nakedness, from their guilt, from their shame, and restores them to their position of dignity as the image bearers of God. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just do that once. He does this all the time. And if we, we think of the, the story, and it's a well-known story of the, of the prodigal son, now what happens is that this individual has said, I am going to do what I want to do. And he leaves and he goes and he sells everything and he, and he lives the life that he wants to live until he finally realizes, whoops. 
says, I need to go home. And what happens while he is afar off, the father runs to him. And he embraces him and he clothes him and he feeds him. And this, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. That he bent low and he took on flesh. And he is the one who hung there naked, full of our guilt and our shame. And then he clothes us with righteousness. We just sang with, with uh, full arrayed in blood-washed linen. That's, that's the story that Jesus comes to us and he follows us and he pursues us. And he says, I'll take your guilt. Be clothed in my righteousness. Be free from the sin that you chose because I love you. Has God said? Yes, he did. So gospel application. Do you trust the words of God? Because I think we can look at these stories and say, oh man, yeah, no, where Eve was at, I, I trust that. What Jesus said, man, quoting these scriptures, man must not live by the bread, by the bread, by bread alone, but but by the words of God. What about all the other words of God? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the bread, he is the door, he is the good shepherd. Do I believe that? Is it trustworthy? Is it true? Is the Bible God's word? Has God said, do you trust the words of God? Secondly, have you personally recognized your own nakedness, your own shame, your own guilt, your own impoverishment, and have you been covered by the righteousness of Christ? We need him. Because we have all committed that high treason. We have all chosen the fruit of autonomy and sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. But Christ, while we were yet sinners, died for us so that we might have everlasting life. Before I close in prayer, I want to Actually, let me, let me quote, quote, close, and, and then we'll talk about communion. And Yeah, let me, let, me, let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for our time now here. I thank you that you, your words are trustworthy. I pray that we would all, in moments of doubt, in moments of fear, in moments of, of even hatred and anger towards things that are going on around the world or us, around, in the world around us, that we can say, yes, God has said, he is trustworthy. He is true. And right now, I don't understand it. I don't see it. We might be the Job just saying, God, answer me. That we can say, yes, God has said. He is trustworthy. He is true. God, would you receive the honor and glory? Because you are due that. Thank you for revealing you, yourself to us and your character and how much you love us and that you have pursued us vehemently. Thank you for all you do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to end uh, just briefly here with a quote from, from Martin Luther, none other. Um, in a minute, we actually are going to go sing again uh, the song that we sang again, I don't know, 11 weeks ago of um, uh, drawing a blank. A mighty fortress is our God. Right, and as we sing those words, that Luther had some angst against the devil. Right, and again, when when we sing this song, when he talks about one little word will fail fell him, that one little word is liar. 
You're full of guile and craftiness, and you can come to me with all you want. You're a liar. God has said. Let me close with this Luther quote, and then we'll have and take communion together. It says this, The devil cannot be our enemy since we are against him with God's word. Wherewith we destroy his kingdom. We destroy his kingdom with God's word. He is, he is a prince and a God of the world and has greater power than all the kings, potentates, and princes upon earth. Wherefore, he would be revenged of us and assault us without ceasing as we both see and feel. We have against the devil a great advantage, powerful, wicked, and cunning as he is. He cannot hurt us since tis not against him we have sinned but against God. Therefore, we have nothing to do with that arch enemy. But we confess and say, against thee, Lord, we have sinned. We know through God's grace that we have a gracious God and a merciful Father in heaven whose wrath against us, Christ Jesus, our only Lord and Savior, has now appeased with his precious blood. Now, for, for as much as through Christ we have remission of sins, the peace with God, so must the envious devil be content to let us alone in peace, so that henceforward he can neither upbraid nor hit us in the teeth concerning our sins against God's laws. For Christ has canceled and torn in pieces the handwriting of our consciences. <laughs> that is such a beautiful poetic line. Christ has canceled and torn in pieces the handwriting of our consciences, which was a witness against us and nailed to the same to his cross. To God be everlasting honor, praise, and glory in Christ Jesus for the same. Amen. That was from uh, his little book called Table Talk. Again, we're going to take a time to reflect, confess sin, corporate, individual, and take these elements. I'll get you a, just a minute. Uh, I need to go grab my elements as well, but be reflecting. Has God said, has God said that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood that paid for your sins? Did God say that? Is it trustworthy? Is it true? All I would ask is that if you say, yes, that is true. I, I bow the knee to King Jesus. And we would love for you to take these elements with us. I know we're not necessarily gathering, but we're doing the best we can. And I'm going to take this with my brothers and sisters all over the place to be able to say, yes, God has said.